June 6, 1944. Over two million in total from 13 nations worked together to storm the beaches of France. It was a highly choreographed effort to gain a foothold against the heavily fortified Nazi positions along the coast. And, history tells us that at great cost to tens of thousands, it was actually successful. And yet, one of the most important parts of D-Day, which it was later called, was something that took place in the days before D-Day, something that doesn't get the, the same sort of attention necessarily, but something that was essential for the, the success of what we know as D-Day. And it was the effort of a relatively small group of frogmen, as they were known, forerunners to the modern-day Navy SEALs, who snuck into the German waters undetected, and who over the course of the next several days leading up to D-Day worked feverishly around the clock to de-arm the Nazi underwater explosive devices and to clear channels through which tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands would then later pass in just a few days' time to storm the beaches. It was the effort of these relatively small numbers of men that made the critical difference in the outcome of the battle, and that battle made a critical difference in the outcome of the war. In later years, these frog men would be respected, and yet very few understood the role that they played in D-Day, and even today, very few understand just how significant their work truly was and the difference it made for the outcome of World War II. This morning is not about D-Day, for you history nerds that are getting excited. It's not even primarily about the frogmen, but it's about another event which is widely celebrated, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet many people, even Christians, don't understand why the resurrection is so important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like the work of those frogmen, sometimes goes unrecognized. It flies under the radar. We understand and celebrate and discuss and study and preach and herald the truths of the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, and probably many of us in this room could stand up and share exactly why Jesus died. But my guess is that fewer of us would understand why it is that Jesus rose from the dead and what significance that has for us today. What does the resurrection mean? If there was no resurrection, would we still be saved from our sins? If there was no resurrection, would the crucifixion still have the same effect? What did the resurrection accomplish and how does that impact us today? I mean, after all, wasn't it Jesus' death on the cross that secured our salvation. And on the cross, as Jesus died, didn't he say, it is finished? Well, if Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross, then 
what role does the resurrection play? Well, if you've ever had those kinds of questions, and my guess is many of us have, you are not alone. These are good questions to ask, and unfortunately, they are questions that aren't often addressed or maybe not often enough addressed by pastors and teachers and evangelicalism. So our goal this morning, then, is to answer those questions. It's not just to see the resurrection as a historical event, which it is, but it's to see what the resurrection accomplished. It's to see what the resurrection means for our lives today. And so with that, we go now to Luke chapter 24. We're picking up in the storyline with Jesus having already died. He's been dead. He's been buried now for three days. His tomb, which would have been likely cut in the side of a mountain, was blocked by a huge boulder. It was sealed by Roman officials. It was guarded by highly trained soldiers. In fact, we read in chapter 23, verse 56, that the women who followed Jesus had seen where he was laid, and then they had gone home and they had prepared spices for his body. This would have been customary for friends and for family members of the deceased who would then embalm, so to speak, the body with these spices. It was a way to preserve the body. It was also a way of showing respect to the one who had passed. Chapter 23 closed with Luke telling us that on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But now, as chapter 24 opens, it is now the Sabbath. It's the dawn or early dawn of the first day of the week. Luke tells us what happened next, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, which is the women that we've been introduced to, in verse 55, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. Now we know from verse 10 that the group of women who went to the tomb was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and some other women. And up until this point, their mourning was very ordinary. Everything was happening as was expected. They got up. They likely had the morning planned out. They were going to take these spices that they had already prepared ahead of time. They knew exactly where the tomb was. They'd already scouted out the location of where Jesus' body was laid. And so they go there fully expecting that they will get there. They'll have to find some sort of way to get the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. They would go inside the tomb. There would be Jesus' body exactly as it was three days earlier. And there they would lovingly and carefully present his body and preserve his body with these spices. However, what happened next was so outside the script, so shocking, that it, if it were not for the overwhelming evidence that we have from multiple sources, we would be tempted to not even believe it at all. Because the stone, the huge stone that covered the entrance of the tomb was rolled aside and Jesus' body was gone. And just try to imagine for a moment their amazement, their confusion. Wait a minute, 
Maybe they kind of backing up, like, do we have the right tomb? You know, kind of like you do if you start to head into the bathroom and then you wonder, okay, is this the right bathroom? Is this the men's room? Is this the ladies' room? Like, am I in the right spot? You know, we haven't had our coffee yet and it's still early before dawn. Maybe we're just confused. Is this the location? Is this the right tomb? I thought he was laid there. Maybe he was laid somewhere else in the tomb. Let's look around. Just imagine the shock. Who took Jesus' body? Why would they take Jesus' body? Where is Jesus' body? Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on the third or be crucified and on the third day rise. It's tempting to get distracted here by the sensational, by the by the angels, these two men that stood by them in dazzling apparel. But remember, angels are just messengers. Angels are never meant to be the center of attention. They're always meant to point us to something more significant. And what's more significant than these angels' appearance is these angels' message. Which is, why are you looking for Jesus here among the dead? Now just stop and consider that for a minute. (laughs) What a ludicrous thing for them to ask, right? if it weren't for Jesus' words that he'd already spoken to them. Because you would expect to find a dead person where the dead are laid, right? In a tomb. That's exactly where they should be expecting to find Jesus, among the dead. And after all, these women had been at the foot of the cross. They had seen with their own eyes Jesus tortured and crucified. And then they had seen the place where Jesus' body was, was laid in the tomb. They saw. They were expecting, once again, to see his body. But notice that these angels remind the women here That for Jesus' followers, there is something much more important than what they can see. What's more important than what they can see? It's what they heard. In fact, verse 6, the angel said, remember how he told you what they heard while he was still with you in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise, verse 8, and they remembered his words. 2,000 years later, we are still tempted to evaluate the nearness of God or the work of God or the truth of God or the promises of God based on what we can see aren't we? And we, like these women, need this reminder 2,000 years later that we walk by faith and not by sight. That we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That we live by what we hear, God's word, and not by what we can see around us, what our circumstances tell us. 
And we need that. We need to be reminded that when we are in the dark and everything around us looks chaotic or looks tragic or looks uncertain or looks confusing or looks terrible, that we can trust in the dark the words that God has communicated in the light. We don't have to go by what we can see because what we can see will oftentimes deceive us and that as people of God, people of the word of God, people of the book as Christians were originally known, people of the way, the way that God has spoken, we live and we walk and we evaluate everything by what God has said. We need that when things are going well. But we especially need that when tragedy strikes. When we lose a loved one. As we heard the tragic news, and some of you already knew, many of others of you heard even this morning as Pastor Rick shared for us news about the Woodwards. News about another family in our church that lost a loved one this week. Two different crises, two different trials. Two different opportunities to remember that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because God has told us that he is with us. Because he has told us that he is faithful and true. But I can't see him. But I can't hear him. I can't, I, I don't, I don't, the circumstances around me don't seem to indicate that this is going to turn out well or that God actually loves me or that God is actually, I don't see how he can work and weave this together for my good. And that's precisely when we need to be reminded, like these women, that we don't evaluate our circumstances and we don't live and we don't set the trajectory of our emotions based on what we can see or what we can feel by what God has told us. His unfailing, unchanging promises to us. That even when the storms of life rage, He has promised to work all things together for the good of His own people. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not height or depth, things present or things future, things to come, or anything else in all the world. This is one of the reasons we come week after week after week after week to the Word of God, and we sing the Word, and we pray the Word, and we proclaim the Word, and we just work our way through the Word, so that God would just shape and form us sometimes ever so subtly by his word to continue to take our trust and our confidence and our hope off of what we can see and more and more and more place it on the truth of what he has said, what he has declared. So that whether we go through the mountaintop experiences of the wonders and the joys of life or the deepest valleys of sorrow and grief and struggle, we know that our God does not change. We know that there is a hope yet to come. There's a glorious inheritance for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let 
And this is exactly what these angels direct these women towards. It was a gentle reminder. Don't look for Jesus here. Live by what Jesus said, not by what you saw. He told you these things would happen. He told you what to expect. He told you that he would rise from the dead. Remember? And they did remember. In fact, verse 8 may be one of the most underrated verses in the whole chapter, chapter 24. And they remembered his words. May we be like these faithful women. Oh, may we be like these faithful women. I was so encouraged, even from a distance this week, walking through tragedy and hearing testimony. Some in our church family suffered, even as others of us had a wonderful week rejoicing with family and friends for Thanksgiving. Hearing the testimony coming out from those who are suffering, continuing to hang to and cling on to the truths of, of the Word of God. God is always good. God is always faithful. God is always true. And He is true and faithful and good even now, even though we can't see it. These women, they remembered. They remembered things that Jesus had told them. His promises that he had made already. Promises like he had made in Matthew chapter 16, which says from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or Matthew 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Or Matthew chapter 20, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then Jesus went out and did exactly what he had predicted. He was killed. And on the third day, he came back to life. And these faithful women remembered. They remembered. But they didn't just remember and stay there. In Matthew's account, the angel messengers tell these ladies to go and tell Jesus' disciples. They are to come and see, and then they are to go and tell. The call of personal evangelism here. They were called to go out and share everything that they had seen, which was just as it had been told to them. Verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So they went out and they shared exactly what they had seen. They went out and they shared that what they saw actually aligned with everything that Jesus had told them. And this is the rhythm of discipleship. We experience the risen Jesus. We experience his life-changing work in our lives. We experience the peace that comes in the midst of joy and in the midst of tragedy. We experience the comfort that comes from his Holy Spirit inside of us and the comfort that comes from the church gathered around us. And then we go and we tell others 
about the great hope that we have through Jesus Christ. We tell them about our risen Savior. We invite other people to hear the good news about the message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then we go and we tell them to tell other people about the risen Savior. We tell people about the God who made us. The God whom we rebelled against with our unbelief and our independence and our lack of trust. We tell people about the God who rightly should allow all of us to face the eternal punishment brought about by our own sin. We tell people then of the love of God, the love that provided a substitute who took the penalty for sin and death and destroyed the power of death forever by rising from the dead. We tell people of the substitute, Jesus, who will return to earth one day to judge the world and reward the faithful and reign as king. And then we tell people to experience the freedom and joy that comes from being reunited with God our Father. And we invite people to be forgiven and changed and made new by the power of God. And we invite people to turn from unbelief to belief and to trust in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, what we are really doing is we are inviting people from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and races and cultures and time periods is we are inviting them to worship. You see, worship is the rightful response to the God who reigns. And so these faithful women go and they tell the 11 disciples and these great heroes of the faith immediately believe, don't they? <laughs> no, they don't. Verse 11, but these words seem to the apostles, to them, an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. He went home marveling, wondering what had happened. So let's come back to our main question now that we asked at the beginning which is what did Jesus' resurrection accomplish and what does that mean for our lives today? I want to offer six things to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished and what that means for our lives today. First, the resurrection of Jesus means that he was telling the truth. I think it's good that we begin here. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know he was telling the truth. He promised that he would be raised from the dead and then he was raised from the dead just as he promised. In fact, this was part of the angel's message. The, the angels, if we were to summarize, maybe for uh, like the fifth grade reader or fourth grade reader, Jesus, the angel's message to these women was, I told you so, right? Or Jesus told you so. He said that this would happen, and it happened. In fact, Paul, the first century church planter and missionary, would write in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to very specific people. And then Peter goes on to name those people, inviting his readers to go out and to find those people, most of whom were still alive when Peter wrote, and ask for themselves, find out for themselves, is this actually true? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? So that this person and this person and this person could say, yep, he did. Because he appeared to me and I saw him with my own eyes. 19th century British pastor J.C. Ryle. You've heard his name a time or two, I think. 
wrote, it is a striking circumstance that of all the facts of our Lord's earthly ministry, none are so incontrovertibly established as the fact that he rose again. The wisdom of God, who knows the unbelief of human nature, has provided a great cloud of witnesses on the subject. Never was there a fact which the friends of God were so slow to believe as the resurrection of Christ. Never was there a fact which the enemies of God were so anxious to disprove. And yet, in spite of the unbelief of friends and the enmity of foes, the fact was thoroughly established. Its evidences will always appear to the fair and impartial mind as unanswerable. It would be impossible to prove anything to the world if we refuse to believe that Jesus rose again. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that he was telling the truth. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection means he has the authority over life and death. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything that he said and did was a lie. Since he rose from the dead, we must accept everything he said and did because his authority is absolute. He has the power. He has the authority over life and over death. He even demonstrated that throughout his ministry by raising people from the dead. Like the one thing, maybe not the one thing, but one of the chief things that we as humans are powerless over is death. That's why at funerals, we're sober, right? Because we recognize even as we come face to face with death, how frail our lives truly are. That even the best and the brightest and the strongest and the healthiest, the smartest, powerless ultimately over our death. And yet our very powerlessness over death reminds us that Jesus in that way is not like us. Because he has the power over death death. In fact, Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus was about to ascend back to the Father, remember he said to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority based on Jesus' identity, based on his resurrection. John, another one of Jesus' followers, recorded Jesus' words in John 10 when he said, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. If you are a Christian, you serve a risen king. Not just a resuscitated king. But a risen king who has the authority over the very pit of death. The resurrection of Jesus third means then that our sins have been paid in full. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 kind of goes on to explain if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ hasn't been resurrected. If Christ hasn't been resurrected, then our faith is in vain. We're misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins, he says. So apparently when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, and it truly was 
finished, but that finishedness of Jesus' death, dying for our sins, had to be amen, had to be sealed by a resurrection from the dead to demonstrate that God is not just continuing, Christ isn't continuing to suffer for sin. But there was an end to the suffering for sin. He definitively, beyond all doubt, paid the debt for sin. And we know that he definitively, without doubt, paid the debt for sin because he finished the payment and rose from the dead. He's not continuing to suffer for sin. He's not dead. That's why his resurrection is so important, even for our salvation, because it means that our sin, past, present, and future, for all Christians, all who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, is paid in full. All of it. Not as though Jesus will have to suffer again, or suffer in continuation, or have to go to the cross again. It was truly paid in full because he was the perfect and acceptable sacrifice. And he was victorious even over death. The sting of, of sin is death. Right? It's because the wages of sin is death. So the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead shows his power over sin. It shows his power over death. And it shows that sin, as I said, has been paid in full. Which means the resurrection is not an accessory to the gospel. You can't have the cross without the empty tomb and receive salvation. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He would be an imposter because he said he was going to rise from the dead. So if he didn't, he was a liar. If he was a liar, he was not perfect. If he wasn't perfect, he couldn't die for our sin because even if he died, he would be dying for his own sin alone. If he didn't rise from the dead, he'd still somehow be suffering for sin. He would not have paid for sin in full. Danny Aiken writes, Christ's resurrection is essential for our salvation. It is God's amen to Christ's it is finished. Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus means we who are in Christ, which is one of the ways the Bible, the New Testament talks about being born again. Those who are born again, those who have repented of their sin and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been given the Holy Spirit, we are now in Christ. We are counted in Christ. Christ as our substitute for our sin, Christ's righteousness applied to our account. We are in Christ who is our life and our salvation and our identity. And the resurrection means that we who are in Christ will be resurrected too. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 again, he writes that Christ's resurrection from the dead is a first fruit of all those who have fallen asleep. So when engineers want to know how something's going to work, new product perhaps, or scientists are designing something, what do they do? They build a, a model, or they build a prototype, they test it. And if the prototype or the model works, then they know that everything they build following that template or that pattern will also work. The farmer, the, the gardener knows if the first fruits, the first crop from the, from the harvest is good, the rest of the harvest will be good. And Paul is telling us that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a first fruit. 
It's a demonstration. It's a prototype. It's a model for our resurrection. We know that those who are in Christ, we've already been raised from death to life. We've already crossed over. Our dead hearts have been made new. We've been revived. We've been transformed from death to life spiritually. But we know, don't we, every single day when we get up and we feel the aches and pains and we see the gray hair and we have to put on our glasses, we're reminded that our bodies are not as they should be. Our bodies are failing, are decaying. And so the first fruits of Christ's resurrection is not only to show us that that God brings life out of death spiritually to make us new spiritually, but it's also a first fruit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus Christ returns back to earth one day, this glorious event that we're longing for, we know that on that day, the dead in Christ will be raised and we will receive resurrection bodies, glorified bodies. You wonder, what will that look like? Look to Jesus' resurrection body. It's the closest hint we have to what ours will be like. And this is our hope. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 8. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, you want to be sure that you have eternal life? Look to the empty cross and the empty tomb to our very much alive and risen Savior. God has done it once, and we'll do it again. And this is the great hope we have, even in sorrow and even in loss. Our great hope is is not that one day we will develop technology that will minimize death, take the mortality rate down to zero. Our great hope is that one day Jesus Christ will return and he will bring with him all those who have gone on before us, who've already died in Christ. We will see them again and we will spend eternity with our Savior and with them together, gathered around the throne worshiping in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we long for. That's why, friends, when we go through suffering, when we grieve, when we go through loss, we We don't grieve without hope. We grieve with great hope. We mourn, yes, but we mourn with great confidence that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, that our loved ones who've already died in Christ are with Jesus even now. And when Jesus Christ returns, they will come. And if we have already died, he will bring us with him. He makes all things new. Christ will succeed. He will be victorious. How do we know? We know because he's already done it. He's already demonstrated his power over death. This brings us to number five. The resurrection of Jesus then means we have nothing to fear. What is it that you fear the most this morning? Public speaking? 
death, probably. Maybe your death, maybe the death of a spouse or a friend, a parent, a child. Since Jesus has conquered death for the believer, death is not the end. It's just a change of station, a change of address. And we have a promised inheritance that cannot be shaken. Back to Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? And then he gives a sampling of all kinds of extremes. He says not even those things can separate us from the love of God. Because since Jesus has conquered death, we have nothing to fear. It doesn't mean we have nothing to mourn over or grieve over when we face crisis or loss or sorrow or hurt or broken relationships, unmet expectations. We're human. Of course we suffer. Even as Rick reminded us earlier, it's why we exist as a church family. It's one of the reasons why we exist as a church family. It's to grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. But the reality undergirding all of that is the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because in the end, Christ is victorious. So what do we fear? That the perfect love of God most clearly evidenced in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has not already cast out. This means then finally, number six, the resurrection of Jesus means he is worthy of worship. Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. And sometimes that worship is with arms lifted high and voices lifted high on the heights of, of joy. Sometimes that worship is with our faces bowed low to the ground. Disappointment or hurt, sorrow. Acknowledging the fact that our hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is built on the sure and steady anchor of the promises and character of our unchanging God, even when the storms around us blow through us, even as we sing, even as our sails have all been torn, is our ballast of assurance. Is God's love ever true? It's one of the reasons we try to be very strategic when we gather together for worship, we try to think and pray through and plan through everything that we do and say. It's one of the reasons over the last several weeks we've opened, I've opened our services with some sort of call and admonition and reminder to try to set the, the tone and the expectations around why it is we gather and how we gather and who it is that gathers. The gathering of the church and our worship time together is not some sort of divine cosmic pep rally where we're... You know, Matt and the team's purpose is to try to whip everybody up into some sort of happy, clappy frenzy where we're all excited to be Christians. And why we don't begin by inviting everybody, jump on your feet, put your hands in the air, put your hands together, let's get excited this morning. Because some of you walk in and that's where you're at, right? Praise Jesus. 
Like, praise the Lord. And if that's where you're at, we, we want to encourage that. We want to remind you of that. But it could be that the person sitting next to you is, is just limping in on fumes. They may not even know Christ. Or if they know him, they're struggling to, to trust his promises. How can he be good given the month I've had or the year I've had or the life I've had, the experience I had this morning? It could be wrestling with unmet expectations or a breakup or divorce or dashed hopes or loss. And we hope that even then, as we gather together, both the one who comes in rejoicing, and that rejoicing is easy, and the one who comes in sorrowful yet always rejoicing can stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and be reminded as we sing about the God who rules and reigns, as we sing and hear about his incredible love for us, as we open his word together, and we are reminded to look past our circumstances to the God who exists and the God who reigns and the God who's drawn near to us through his son and the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ and says, I am gentle and lowly. My burden is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So that we might be that kind of family where there is a place for everyone. Not just those who walk in and who are excited in the moment. Those who walk in and who are struggling in the moment. And everyone in between. Because the grace of God is sufficient for all of that. The truth of God's word speaks to all of that. The spirit of God works through all of that. He is worthy of worship. And it's because ultimately we do not have a dead hope. We don't have a, simply a historical hope. We have a living hope. We serve a risen Savior who's broken every chain, who's defeated sin and death, who will one day do away with all of it when he recreates the new heaven and the new earth. And so regardless of our circumstances, we can lift up our voices and sing, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. He has broken every chain. There is salvation in his name, Jesus Christ. He is our living hope. And some of you will sing that like, he's our living hope. And some of you will sing that like, he's our living hope. But the truth remains. So we're going to sing that here in a moment. Pastor Matt's going to come Prepare to lead us. You see, no event in the history of the cosmos has had the effect of Jesus' resurrection. And this effect is most importantly experienced in the hearts and lives of changed men and women, millions of them throughout the world. And this is our confidence that we have. Even as we sing to our living hope, it's that God will be good to his promises, that he will see us through, that one day he will raise us to new life physically, and that we will reign with him forever. He has done it once. He will do it again. Let's pray. Father, the resurrection of 
your son, Jesus Christ, is the bedrock foundation on which our hope is built. That when the storms of life come, when trials come, when suffering comes, when heartache comes, when joy comes, when our hopes become reality, and everywhere in between, Father, our our ballast of assurance is your love demonstrated through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. That we have a living hope. So we sing to you now as our response. We sing to you with joy. We sing to you with gratitude. We sing to you with love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Just stand. Let's sing.